Things Connected podcast, where we go in-depth on the most pressing and fascinating issues of today with experts in their field. This is Jared Hocking. Just a friendly reminder before I introduce today's episode that if you are enjoying the show, please do leave a review on the platform that you're using, such as Apple Podcasts, and continue to share with friends directly and on social media. All of that is hugely helpful and very much appreciated. Okay, today I'm speaking with the freelance science journalist and soon-to-be author Rachel Gross. Rachel has an extremely impressive background, including being a graduate of the top-ranked Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University, and before that earning her Bachelor of Arts at UC Berkeley. Rachel was recently the digital science editor at the Smithsonian Magazine, and from 2018 to 2019, she was awarded a Knight Science Journalism Fellowship at MIT, where she studied reproductive biology, gender, and the history of science. Her writing has appeared in a number of prominent publications, including the New York Times, The Atlantic, Scientific American, National Geographic, and many others. Rachel and I get into many interesting threads in this conversation, including the ways in which a primary reliance on advertising revenue and a shift to a primarily digital business model have changed journalism, and whether journalists should strive for objectivity or moral clarity given today's hyperpartisan and what's often been called post-truth environment. We also talk about the ways that social media is driving division and conspiracy thinking, Rachel's work on reproductive health and some of the forgotten heroes there, the recent J.K. Rowling controversy, and much more. I thought this was a really interesting and important and timely conversation that I hope you enjoy. And now I bring you Rachel Gross. All right, I am here with Rachel Gross, who in the short time that I've known her is truly, uh, Rachel, you are one of the most interesting and, and cool people that I, I have met. So excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you for doing this. Oh, thank you so much, Jared. Um, that is extremely generous. I probably am only one of the five most interesting people in a 10-foot radius in Brooklyn. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I've been really looking forward to this. So I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I really have too. And your work has touched on so many different interesting topics. There's a lot of ground to cover here. And I'm, I I think you are a voice of authority and enlightenment on these issues. So given that you have been in journalism for basically your whole career, and this was always the the goal, you've been in journalism now since 2013, since coming out of uh, Northwestern's uh, Medill School of Journalism. The industry has experienced a number of changes in in that short amount of time, maybe less so, maybe less radical changes than the decades preceding it, where we saw really just the evaporation of print journalism and and completely shifting to digital. But certainly there have been groundswell changes in in that time. So I'm, I'm curious to start. In terms of the journalism landscape, what changes for better or, or worse have you witnessed since starting in the field in 2013? Yeah, great questions. I would say I might not be as much of an authority as someone who has been shaped by this era of journalism. And I think my whole path has been shaped by the move to online journalism and the type of more bloggy and quick paced uh, reporting that we've come to see today. Um, So I actually started right before grad school um, at Wired Magazine, a print magazine. 
So in that way, my journey is kind of mirroring the switch from print to digital. But after that, it was basically, um, I started at a small Jewish magazine, and I basically took control of the website and helped uh, increase their online coverage and their daily coverage. Um, I moved to Slate, which, as you know, is very fast-paced, opinion-based journalism, extremely online. And then after that, I was the science editor at Smithsonian.com, which is the digital arm of the magazine. Uh, So being in those places, I realized that what I was most valued for was my ability to be extremely quick, pretty accurate, um, to have takes. So to have original angles that you could generate really quickly. Um, And sometimes those things were valued more than original reporting. Um, At Slate, for instance, it's evidence-based arguments, but it really is about your kind of big idea, big takeaway, um, rather than did you talk to a lot of sources and get a lot of great perspectives. Um, That was my experience anyways. Mm. So it was kind of the move to content, maybe over context, but it was about how much can you produce, how productive can you be, and can you go viral? Um, That was definitely a big thing at Smithsonian. We checked our analytics every morning and we wanted to know which stories were going crazy on the internet, picked up by Reddit, um, picked up by the Twitter sphere. And it was important to us because it meant more eyes on our ads um, and it meant proving that online could be viable and bring the eyeballs and the readers that print wasn't always bringing anymore. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to, <laughs> to to get into here about what should we be paying for as consumers and the importance of, of information, whether information should be free and accessible to everyone, or it should be, if we should be paying for the product that we're, that we're getting. And, and really, as the digital shift has taken place, there's, we're no longer adequately paying as consumers for the research, for the, the, the hard won truths that are being produced by journalism. And I think that's very corrosive and, and very insidious. And I think we need to recognize that journalism is not just any other public good that, or any other product rather, where you know, we can rely on advertisers to support that work in perpetuity. There's a lot of very insidious incentives that that take place when advertising takes such a hold in in journalism. And I, I think it's been lost maybe in terms of how important journalism really is it, in terms of finding and uncovering truths. There was this this episode of the great show Hidden Brain that I'm very informed by which is called Starving the Watchdog. And it it really, a light bulb went off for me listening to that episode because it describes how when we lose a journalism outlet, we lose much more than when a private company, you know, let's say a software as a service company comes about. I mean, you know, if, if Microsoft Word or Slack or one of these companies were to go under, sure, there would be some impact on consumers. But when truth is lost, when truth finding is lost, there. The, the role of journalism in our society is is so important. So I, I was curious if you could talk about that, about why we need to recognize this and, and maybe provide safeguards for journalism, maybe, maybe shift back to a pay-for-play model, which I, I know some of the publications are, are starting to do. So yeah, just your general thoughts about like 
the kind of perversive incentives that are taking place with with advertising supporting journalism rather than consumers directly. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So most places that I've worked at um, switched either partially or totally to the pay for play model while I was there. So Wired put up paywalls um, after I was there for some of their online content. And um, Slate started a like members only area where you get kind of exclusives um, and extra parts of the podcast that was a paid subscription model. And these endeavors were very fraught and nobody knew if they would succeed and if people would be willing to pay after not paying for so long. Um, And the way I think of it is that journalism sort of missed the boat as we were bringing all this great content online and had an opportunity to charge for it and just charge for what it was worth and what the labor was to make it. Um, and like you said, readers got really used to getting all of this for free. And if one site had a paywall, they would find it somewhere else, get around it. And that became the norm. And it's really hard to go back. I don't know if we ever would be able to totally, I would say it's a lot of the prestige outlets that have been able to erect a paywall. And I'm not convinced that it's always working for them. Um, I think that's yet to be seen. Uh, I will say, as you were talking about, like the corrosive nature of draining funds from these places or outlets closing, it, it makes me think how, as I was coming up, journalism never was pure. I don't know if it ever was, but I've always had some like advertorial in the mix or a funded section where I was either editing or writing for it. And it was supposed to be journalism, but there was a theme picked, um, maybe even a story picked. And that is different than deciding with your editorial team or based on your readership uh, what you're going to cover. So I've always maybe felt like this was more normal, but I know that it's a product of the shift we're going through. And I will say that I've definitely seen the direct uh, consequence of having more freelancers writing the blog posts, people writing more blog posts and articles, and the fees being constantly cut throughout the past like few years. Um, and like when I was an editor, I really had to fight to keep the fees where I wanted them to be. And sometimes it helped to have some sort of funded section where I had a little extra money to offer freelancers and to guarantee better quality. But that kind of siphoning of funds out of the industry results in like lower quality work. And it's, yeah, it's not rocket science, right? If you have only an hour to write a short article and it's supposed to be aggregated, you don't have time to do original reporting. That is a lower quality product. You're going to have more errors and corrections. The trust in journalism, if it's based on that kind of reporting, is probably going to erode. And you're still not able to pay your bills as a freelancer doing that kind of work. So the whole system is not sustainable. Mm, I mean, the current moment that we're living through is a very strange and kind of unprecedented one when it comes to free speech and and journalism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you have a president who for the past four years or even preceding that has waged a a war of condemnation against the free press and the free press, the the enemy of the people, it's just a it's a very startling time. And and you couple that with the 
really bifurcation of society that we have seen where 50% of the country watches MSNBC and 50% of the country watches Fox News. And there's barely any overlap between the stories that they're telling and the perspectives that they're telling. And I wonder from your standpoint, I wonder if we could go back quickly to the ways that reliance on advertising has really corroded the integrity of journalism. So, and the shift to digital is, is coupled in that. So one of the ways you talked about was this incentive now, rather than being fully accurate to, to be the first one to publish a story or, or these kind of hot takes and, and mm-hmm. clickbait journalism. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's something I don't know if everyone is, is familiar with, but I, I think another way is that um, th- this strikes me as, a, as an independent podcaster. If I were to have a advertiser on this platform, if, if a sponsor were supporting the show, then in a way there's a certain censorship of certain viewpoints there, right? Like let's say for example, the New Yorker was my sponsor. And let's say that I took issue with a piece that they had published or on factual grounds or any other uh, any other grounds, I would be far less able or inclined to speak freely about that. Have you seen, what, what are the ways that you've, you've seen or, or you know of that advertising? I, I, and also I think another issue is that there's just less revenue than there used to be per, per journalist, right? There's just less resources to fund the, the truth-telling experiment that, that is the free press. So can you elaborate on, on some of those kind of perversive ways that advertising is affecting journalism? Yeah. So I do want to say like advertising is nothing new. We've had advertisements since like the beginning of American journalism. So I don't think necessarily it has to corrode the quality of journalism or even the quote unquote objectivity of journalism, which we can get into later. But there's always been safeguards against this. So they talk about the firewall between um, the advertising or sales team and the editorial team. I think they talked about at the New York Times having separate elevators for the sales team and the journalism team. Um, and I always remembered learning that in grad school, this idea that like, if the twain shall not meet, then their different maybe conflicts of interest uh, won't conflict. That being said, it does affect your content sometimes in more subtle ways. So you're actually making me think of when I started at this Jewish magazine, Moment Magazine. It was started by um, two Holocaust survivors and literary greats, um, Leonard Fine um, and Eli Wiesel. And we would have a lot of advertisers, for instance, um, Birthright um, or other types of trips to Israel that would really glamorize Israel. Um, but the magazine was a really multi-perspective uh, not apolitical, but had many political viewpoints showcased within it. So there were a lot of like investigative features that were pretty critical of Israel's policies. So they would just arrange the magazine so that those kind of ads wouldn't be near those kind of critical stories. So it's a subtle way um, of shaping content. And the argument there would be the editors don't interact with the sales team. Like those layout changes are in the last stages. They're still going to write the content that they want to write. And so you have like a win for both sides in that way. So I don't, I don't, yes, I know it's, um, so I don't think advertising necessarily corrodes journalism. Um, When I just started in like 2013, that was the rise of advertorial. And this was um, these sponsored sections where, uh, yeah, how do I 
describe exactly what this is. Once I wrote for the Economist Intelligence Unit, um, which paid very well. I was a freelancer, but they basically shaped stories for me. And I went and did the reporting and found sources, but they told me what the story was. And it was so they could get um, advertising from a specific, I think, online education sponsor that was supporting online education and had a very specific viewpoint. And I guess in my mind, that wasn't journalism. That was a gig I was doing on the side. Um, But that it can be a very dangerous, uh, blurry line because it looks like journalism. It's often not labeled well. Um, I think we've gotten a little better at that recently. And the public doesn't necessarily know the difference. um, And it's on editors to make it clear that one piece is coming from a specific viewpoint and one is from the editorial board of the New York Times, which is a viewpoint. So like I see in my New Yorker daily newsletter, there will be sponsored content at some point. And it's very well labeled, but it's coming from the New Yorker and it looks like an article. And that is where I think it can get really tricky for viewers and affect trust in journalism. This is maybe an indirect answer, but I've also had experience working at places that are connected to like a foundation or an institution, which is a way of influencing journalism. So at Smithsonian, it was really striking that we shared the name of the national museum complex and we, and which is a quasi governmental institution. And we were placed within the commercial or money-making arm of the Smithsonian. Yet we were an independent magazine where we, said we had all our content we came up with on our own. We weren't influenced by the castle, as we called it, which is literally the Smithsonian castle, um, which like represents the big brass there. Um, They have a castle or? Yeah, they they have a physical castle um, from the early days of the Smithsonian. And um, a lot of like the administrators are there. um, The president's office is in there. But were you on the outside of the castle as a a maiden or <laughs> I did not live in the castle and I was actually kind of disappointed when I took the job because I thought we worked in the castle. <laughs> I had this like impression that I was going to be in a castle tower, which was no, we were in an office building. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but one, one day you'll find a way into the castle. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I want to be there now. There's a lot of bureaucracy there. Um, But what I found was there was a bit of an existential crisis between can we be an independent journalism publication that is this connected to a big institution. And one very obvious way was like, I could not write or assign stories about ongoing legislation because it might look like the Smithsonian was throwing its weight behind a certain bill that hadn't passed yet. And that's like a very practical concern. Um, And again, we have the word Smithsonian in our title. But in practice, that meant a lot of politics was off limits to us. So we had to find creative ways to cover politics, um, which are very important. And um, two of our major pillars were science and history. Um, So, for instance, uh, we had a huge debate about building a southern border wall in this country in 2016-17. And we really wanted to address that. I wanted to address it in my section, which was the science section. The way we addressed it was by saying, like, what does science have to say about this? And the story that we ended up writing, uh, which was by the assistant science editor and main science writer, Maya Wayhouse, was what geology has to say about building a thousand mile border wall. 
and it got into all the geological consequences um, and it talked to builders and geologists and ecologists. And a lot of them had this conclusion that it was physically impossible um, to build the kind of wall that the president was asking for. And so we were able to add a science angle um, to an ongoing political conversation, um, but sticking to our mandate of not directly covering partisan politics or ongoing legislation. So I guess I'm trying to get us to think about how that institutional connection we had that we did rely on did shape our coverage. It forced us to be more creative and resourceful. And I was really proud of the work that we did within those limitations. But, you know, we weren't coming from nowhere. We had certain restrictions on us as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one really interesting invisible force that we talked about previously that shapes what stories are covered is who is making the decisions as far as what stories to to cover. It's analog to when someone meets for a job and the hiring manager is a white male and the person sitting across from him looks very different, then there's, you know, there's a certain tribalism and in-group bias that takes place there. And and maybe we can get into your your experiences with that because I think that's really interesting. I, I do want to go for a second to maybe what is the most interesting question of all, which is, has kind of come up in large part um, because of this unique political situation that we're in, where really throughout history, we've never had a president who has derided the free press to the extent and almost 50% of the country just uh, has such a distrust of, of media the way that we see today. And I think part of the claim that is being made here is that it's impossible to be objective as a journalist or, or at least, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post. It's just they interject so much bias into the equation that they are categorically fake news. That's that's essentially what the people on the on the right when they are deriding those organizations and taking their cues from the president are claiming. And this brings us to a very interesting question, which is which journalists are grappling with in the very odd and and historical moment we're in where, you know, just the kind of um, unique behavior of of the president. This is something that journalists are grappling with, which is what does it mean to be objective or from what standpoint should we be be writing from? Should we be writing from a, an objective standpoint, a kind of two-sidedism, or should we be interjecting some kind of moral clarity, as it's been called in the conversation? And in preparation for a talk, I, I read this article by The Economist, which is very interesting and, and outlines um, four trends that are leading to journalists to, to say maybe ob- objectivity is not what we should be striving for anymore. Maybe it should be moral clarity. And uh, to, to pull some language from this article, it says, at the heart of many of these new arguments is a disagreement about the nature and purpose of journalism. A new generation of journalists are questioning whether in a hyper-partisan digital world, objectivity is even desirable. American view from nowhere, objectivity obsessed both sides journalism as a failed experiment, tweeted Wesley Lowry, a Pulitzer Prize winning 30-year-old now at CBS News. And the dean of the Columbia School of Journalism described objectivity as an inherited shibboleth in a message to students recently. So given this and, and given your your position in the industry as a journalist, where do you stand with regards to this objectivity versus moral clarity argument? Where where do you think journalists should strive to fall on? 
There's a lot there. Um, <laughs> I think, first of all, I just think it's funny that all of the issues I mentioned about journalism previously and like all of the problems we're experiencing, I didn't even get into our current politics. Like that's a whole nother layer. Um, we already were struggling in a lot of ways before this. Um, but again, like a political distrust in media is like, I, I, it is unique, but it is all at the same time, nothing new. We have dealt with this before. Um, the press has been vilified before. So I think the question, I think the question about moral clarity versus objectivity doesn't need to rely on our current politics. I think it's something we've been grappling with for longer than that. Um, to me, the question is almost mood. Like, I don't think that any journalist can claim or should want to claim objectivity. That definitely makes me think about like a disembodied eyeball in the sky looking down. And that's not what I want to read as a reader looking to get some better idea of the world and the people in it. Uh, we all like, I, I feel dumb restating this, but we all are shaped by a specific background and experience and community. And we bring those values to the table and we can't shed them all when we do reporting. Um, I think of it more as multi-perspectival journalism. That's my goal. And I think that's maybe more what people who talk about objectivity are thinking of. Like, are we talking to as many viewpoints as possible? Are we getting as many viewpoints as possible within the newsroom from our editors, from our fact checkers, um, from other writers? Because we all have serious blind spots. Uh, that's the nature of being human. And I think the best remedy is getting a lot of perspectives. And ultimately, you're going to draw um, certain conclusions and angles out of that. That is your job. You're distilling what you find in your reporting into whatever you want to call it, a main idea, a takeaway, a thesis, an angle. But if you're doing good reporting, there's going to be valuable truth in what you find. To give a funny example, um, I remember right after the Women's March, uh, the Washington Post Express magazine wrote um, a cover feature about it. And they used some stock art to make some like pink clad protesters in the shape of a female symbol. Um, which we haven't gotten to gender yet, but uh, has some stereotypes in it already because the female symbol is called Venus for the goddess of love and sex. The male symbol is Mars, the god of war. Um, so they messed up and they used the male symbol. So the cover of this magazine ran a male symbol full of pink protesters and wrote that like the women's march was the biggest march of women in the history of America. And the joke on Twitter was like, did you have a woman editor look at this? Are there any women on staff? You would have caught it. Um, and that's silly. There were women on staff. It was more a matter of like a quickly produced magazine and something that seems so obvious that no one notices it. But like, I would say that, that if more eyeballs had been on it, if more like different types of people in the newsroom had looked at it, someone would have caught it. And this is oversimplified, but we all have our ideological blind spots and the more that we have people from different perspectives and can actually listen to them, be open-minded and be criticized by them and be critiqued, the more we can get past those and correct for them. And I think like science journalism should be self-correcting rather than always authoritative on the first try. Mm -hmm. 
Well, so so to drill down, I think this is an interesting concept that you're getting at about multi-perspectivism. If I mean, it's a very fraught and complex topic, though. I mean, we, we talked about this example where you described the New York Times, or it might have been a publication that you were writing for, for every story that was discussing climate change in a way that it presented a crisis, there was this uh, effort to seek out a, a opposing viewpoint, right? And and right. to shed light on those viewpoints. And I mean, at a certain point, you know, that that is multi-perspectivism, but a lot of the times these scientists who are who are expressing these viewpoints or or have a real bias or a real motivation for what they're doing. I, I remember there was that story about the the, the loudest climate denying scientist. I can't remember his exact name, but he basically had taken all of his money from his funding research from ExxonMobil. So and and this is the New York Times had a interesting case of this that they were largely derided recently where they published a sentence about a congressional hearing. I think it was in the impeachment hearing saying the two sides could not even agree on a Mm -hmm. basic set of facts. And the view is that the New York Times knew which set of facts were correct because of their resources and, and their truth finding. And to kind of to have this equivocation of you know, leaving it up to the readers to decide which set of facts are true, that is dishonest in a large way. So how do you, how would you describe the best way to incorporate this multi-perspectivism without leading people to believe a, a false claim? Uh, oh my gosh. Yeah, that was an excellent addition. And so that is a classic um, example, I think even used in journalism schools now of the failure of both sidism, um, the climate change example you mentioned. And that was the period in like 2011-12 when, um, as you were saying, like every article on climate change had to include the one climate change denying scientist out of like hundreds and hundreds um, of those who understood and asserted what was happening uh, with global warming. And that is now seen as like a huge mistake that was absolutely misleading and gave airtime and fanned the flames of these wrong ideas and sometimes wrong facts. Um, So that is not what I meant when I said getting lots of perspectives. I think it is different when we're talking about authorities that we're giving readers signals to trust and that are spouting facts um, rather than people's personal experiences. And I think this goes back to like, we aren't objective. Part of that is we have journalistic judgment that comes from our experience reporting and from talking to a bunch of people in the field for whatever story we've written on. So ultimately when you sit down to write, you should know the set of facts that is true um, as much as you can. And you should know which sources are bullshitting you um, and which ones you want to give airtime to that have interesting and useful things to say. So that's your judgment call and your editor's judgment call, um, which is why I say that that's not objectivity. We're not robots and machines. Um, we have these logical processes and we do bring biases. So I guess one example 
one example of how we all have blind spots and we do make judgment calls when we shape or write stories, even if we don't realize we are. Um, there was a piece that I commissioned and edited for its Smithsonian Science section, and it was on the history of the IUD, so the intrauterine device, this hormonal, tiny little fish hook looking thing that goes in your uterus, and it is a relatively permanent way um, of controlling your fertility. So for five to seven years, it prevents you from getting pregnant. And I had known it as this kind of feminist symbol of empowerment. And it was all about you having the ability to control your body. Um, And we ended up writing the piece kind of from that perspective, how this little device rose to become a symbol of feminist empowerment. Um, And we published it and I was very happy with it. And it got into like controversies about health effects and like um, a specific, very uh, controversial moment where there were some really damaging IUDs. Uh, but when we published it, I got some really interesting comments on Twitter. And one of them was like, you're saying that this is a tool for individual empowerment. Like I know it as a tool of reproductive control. And they led me to look into China's uh, one and two child laws and how the IUD was used there for reproductive control by the state. So after any woman had given birth, she was given an IUD, um, not necessarily with her consent or even being conscious, and it would stay there in her body um, for the rest of her life. She could not remove it herself, only a doctor could. Uh, And it was only after the laws were lifted that the Chinese government mm, very quietly apologized, basically by saying, we'll remove your IUD for free. Uh, and this was a moment that just turned me upon myself and made me realize that this was a huge angle missing from the story. It was this idea that any reproductive technology, any scientific piece of data can be used for liberation or for oppression. So, so this, this strikes me as an example where it wasn't necessarily you were committed to a certain bias or even operating on a certain bias. You just hadn't become aware through your research of this perspective, this historical way that this technique was was used. Would that be accurate? Yeah, it's a blind spot. This is what I mean when I say we all have blind spots and we all have unconscious biases because my association with the IUD um, of it being an empowerment tool, like that's a bias that is probably specific to my background and culture and when I grew up. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's important that journalists are ultimately like accountable in the public sphere and that I can get those kind of comments, whether it's on a comment board, Twitter, or the many emails that I get in response to my articles, because we're not perfect. And like I said, we need to self-correct and consider other angles. So I think that's what I meant with the multi-perspectivalism idea. I really do like the idea of moral clarity I think my concern is that if a journalist sees themselves as the arbiter of like objective truth or moral clarity, it can lead to a lack of humility and you can miss more viewpoints by thinking that you kind of got it under control and that you know everything. I really see two parallel lines, parallel themes running here that are could not have more weight, could could not be more serious and The first is, as we're talking about this undermining of the belief in a free press and an objective press, and the second is in an undermining in the belief in our democracy. And 
literally, if you know, if those two things erode to a certain degree, then the cynicism and the anarchic tendencies or or belief that people have, I mean, the, the threads of civil civil cohesion the that we have could really be be ground down. I mean, you really could not picture a more 1984 like scenario than most people believing that you can't re, you can't believe anything that a certain publication says because it's totally biased and you can't believe that democracy functions as our founders intended in in a efficient and 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 transparent way you can't believe the results because there's 3 million undocumented immigrants who somehow voted i mean though that is just a recipe for social breakdown it, it really is and we're almost seeing you know i mean it's almost like we saw it here in michigan when where i live with the introduction of a few executive orders about staying at home with governor gretchen and whitmer it really had the it portended and and the president uh, tweeting, you know, liberate Michigan, liberate Minnesota. Mm, mm-hmm, it really right. has the portendings of a civil war almost. And and this is, you know, if if we cannot instill a belief in a in a free press that finds truth and reports the facts on the ground, then that's a a very dangerous thing to have. And I, I'm just very concerned that if we if, if journalists decide to move too much in the direction of we're now going to interject our own moral clarity rather than reporting the facts on the ground, then that could just lead to some very dangerous assumptions by the American public, right? Yeah, I mean, I agree with that dystopian idea that like, if you can't trust any and you don't consider any outlet to be truthful, um, definitely that can contribute to the breakdown of society. But I wouldn't catastrophize as much about... um, the journalism system as it is personally. Um, maybe that goes in the face of what I've been saying about the specific problems that I see happening. Uh, but there are many different types of journalism outlets. And we do have the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times. Those publications are all committed to their version of objectivity and to including the facts and to having an opinion section separate from the daily news. And as much as we can criticize them and as much as they can deserve that criticism, they're doing really important work clarifying what's happening with Black Lives Matter and pandemic coverage. And they're putting like huge resources into this reporting that the public normally wouldn't get or otherwise wouldn't get. Um, I remember seeing a big piece uh, on kind of the other huge threat or like big monster happening during this pandemic. It was about how the biggest monster um, is actually not coronavirus, it's tuberculosis, and that really it's the global south and vulnerable countries that are getting absolutely destroyed by tuberculosis, uh, even though it's very treatable because of the resources being redirected, the attention to this pandemic, and just like the lack of help uh, from other institutions. And that is something that could have remained invisible to millions of readers if that reporting wasn't prioritized. And like, that's really important work that's happening. Um, I don't see that changing anytime soon. Uh, I think that style of journalism does try to remove individual opinion, even if it can't remove unconscious bias. But 
in many ways, that type of journalism is still going very strong. We have investigative journalism outlets like ProPublica that are speaking truth to power and digging up stories. So I don't see that going away. Um, and I don't think that TV news outlets like CNN and Fox News and those kind of echo chambers are reflective of all the the journalism landscape we have today. Mm. Well, I do. I, I know you're extremely well educated, given your journalism background at Berkeley and and at Medill at Northwestern. So I do want to ask you kind of a historical context perspective. So there's a number of there's a confluence of interesting dynamics taking place here. And, and one or actually two, let's let me point out two that I think are a big part of this conversation. One is the advent of social media and how Twitter and Facebook have, as you said, cre- you mentioned echo chambers, they've amplified extremist voices to the sense that it, in previous generations, if someone believed in QAnon, if someone believed that Hillary Clinton and John Podesta were operating a child sex trafficking ring in the basement of a pizza shop in Brooklyn, right? they wouldn't really be able to find each other because that would just stay an idea mostly in North Carolina or wherever it originated, and they wouldn't be able to find the audience on the internet that they have today. But now these communication channels are so connected. We, we've connected everyone to the extent that if you believe something as radical as that, as extremist as that, as, as b- not based in reality and based on facts on the ground as that, you can find other people and convince other people of that way. And actually, one of the big <laughs> related points about this is the anti-vaccination movement, right? This is exactly oh. what happened, where mm-hmm. rather than a trust in science and rather than a trust in in in, in experts, right, we, we believe, you know, most people believe in physics and astronomers to understand the origins of the the universe or, or, you know, where we are relative to the sun. But for some reason, someone could go in a Facebook group and they could say something that happened to their child because of vaccination. And all of a sudden they're an expert and all of a sudden we should believe them. So that's a huge trend is that people are finding each other. And, and I really see the, these beliefs, these conspiracy theories as extremism. It, it's totally, I mean, if you, the, the followers of QAnon have just uplifted a, a, a congresswoman, a, a future congresswoman in, in, in Georgia because they've been able to find themselves. And it's just, um, it's conspiratorial thinking. So that's, that's one huge part. And then um, I would say the second one is that we're now living in a period of hyper ideological conformity where Barry Weiss just left the New York Times. She's, she's a journalist that I admire and her resignation received a lot of attention largely because of the reasons that she resigned. And she said in her letter, she said, the truth is no longer a process of collective discovery, but an orthodoxy already known to an enlightened few whose job it is to inform everyone else. So this dovetails with the idea of cancel culture and online on on Twitter, the ways that social media is really driving people to insanity, where there's just this, um, you know, she, she talked about this incident at Evergreen State College, where a very highly respected professor, Brett Weinstein, was driven off, a, a totally liberal person was driven off the campus by these extremist liberal students because of not embracing this um, reshaping of a historical um, black play where the, the, all of the white students and white faculty were supposed to leave campus. So I'm just curious to, those those are just two trends right now um, that I see that are, are fairly unprecedented about the extremism born of social media and the 
really um, ideological conformity where it's just so hard to speak truth and, and to have dissenting opinions. So I'm, I'm curious how you place those two trends in a historical context and any remarks you want, want to comment on about those. Yeah, um, those are also two very big things to address. Um, so I'm, I'm not an expert on journalism history. Again, I feel like I'm more a product of the intersections that have shaped my own career, um, which include social media and Twitter. Um, so again, I tend to see it as not a unique moment in history, but an amplifier. I think that Americans have always loved conspiracy theories and there have always been underground groups that have them. Um, but like you said, it can be a lot easier to find each other now. Um, you can be a lot more interconnected uh, and you can start these discussions that get those communities momentum and moving faster. And it actually makes me think of, um, I think it was Reddit's decision uh, to shut down um, a channel for incels. So the involuntarily celibate community, which I think is one of the most toxic things. Uh, and it raised a big stink about free speech. And it also raised the concern of if you remove a public channel that allows people to gather um, by the light of day, are they going to go into deep holes and have more underground background uh, communications and maybe get more radicalized? Um, I don't mm. have a great... So they'll, they'll find their way to each other no matter what. Yeah, I think those are some of the questions at play here. Um, and similarly, to what extent is it more that Twitter and Facebook have made these conversations communities more apparent to the average watcher who now knows what QAnon is. So like to what extent were they already there and lurking? Um, it's really difficult to say for me. I think that there have always been people who have chosen different authorities than scientific authorities. Um, and some of them for very good reason. Like I just want to say that um, anti-vaxxers, there's a lot of issues around it, but there are definitely people who are marginalized by our medical community and disbelieved and have reason to turn to alternative alternatives. And I think the goal should be that they don't have to turn to alternatives and that medicine can be inclusive and listen to people and yet still operate from a place of facts and good science. Um, and I don't think that historically our medical system has done that for many, many communities and maybe especially women and people of color. Um, I think one of the issues here is I know given your science background and covering science, I'm not sure if there's enough emphasis in our education system, especially in, in secondary school and elementary school on what it takes to discover truth and, and the scientific process. I mean, I, I remember going through that and, but, but one of the things that I've learned only in the past two years, having gone to grad school is the, there's a certain standard for truth, right? Like the, the peer review process of coming up with a fairly certain claim about how the world is through, through the peer review process and through science is a standard, which we should hold all the truths to. So it's easy for someone to take an anecdote like Donald Trump during the debates and say, yeah, I heard this one story about how 
this person, you know, gave vaccinations to their child and a week later it was autistic. Now that's a much different standard of truth than, than, you know, a, a double blind trial, you know, and thousands of data points and everything else. So do you think, do you see any breakdown in our understanding of a standard of, of finding truth in the scientific process? Yeah. I mean, that is just blatantly misleading comment that has nothing to do with science. So uh, just want to be clear there. Um, but <laughs> I, you know, I haven't seen the scientific method change a whole lot. I think that you've seen more public um, retractions and conversations, for instance, within psychology about whether there are major flaws in a field. Um, but I think that, yes, science has a system of discovering what we call truth or facts. Um, and it has worked pretty well. Um, I think the fact that, yeah, it's peer reviewed by other experts. Um, you have to be transparent, show your data, show your methods. And that, like I said, it's self-correcting in that um, new science overturns, usually incrementally, um, past findings and the ideas we slowly progress closer to something we think of as truth. Um, so I think that all stands. Uh, at the same time, especially in writing this book, um, which has a lot to do with the history of science and the scientists who mapped the female body and decided what its purpose was and what the organs within it did. Um, I strongly believe that science is a product of human culture and it is created by flawed human beings like any other part of our culture. And all of those biases get baked into what we then consider truth and facts. And so science does need to be interrogated a lot. And as much as we can demonize fringe theories and extremists, um, oftentimes for good reason, um, especially if they're endangering public health, as much as we have a good process for science and it generates extremely useful data, it isn't without flaw because it comes from humans and humans are all flawed. And I think of science as a product of culture and I don't think that we should worship it. I think we should be questioning what biases go into it and what bigger claims it's making. And when science is the entity you want to answer certain questions about human nature and when there are other disciplines like philosophy that you should be looking to because science isn't going to get you the answer that is useful or that you need. Mm, yeah, that's, that's interesting. And I'm, I'm also cautious while listening to that, that it seems we're almost broadcasting a view that we should also question science itself in the, in the process that went into it. But I, I, I think, yeah, we having should. a scrupulous and critical lens is, is important in, in understanding the biases that allowed for that. Um, I, I want to ask one more question. I, I, I do want to get into much of your work and the subjects that you've covered, Rachel, but I do want to put one thing to rest that I've, I've heard lately, which is very unsettling. And, and I think this feeds into this notion of fake news. And I'm curious how much you've seen this, you, you've worked for a number of, or published for a number of journalism outlets. So this this idea has been broadcast in in some forums, including I heard it recently on uh, an episode of Joe Rogan, who has a huge platform, 130 million <laughs> listeners per episode with uh, Elon Musk, and they voiced this idea that 
basically when setting out to write a story, even a mostly neutral neutral publication such as the New York Times has a certain angle that they are going for. Basically, they arrive at the story before they tell it so or before they find the facts. So I actually personally know of a friend who this this he claims that this happened to where they ignored all contradictory evidence and facts about a, a claim about his company and essentially wrote the headline and the article and then filled in the details with the people that they spoke with. So I'm curious if, and I do think that people like the president seize upon these examples, however few they may be, to feed into this narrative of every, you know, these publications are fake news and you can't believe what you you read. So I'm curious to what extent throughout your your career in the newsrooms that you've worked, you've seen this. Is it is is this a common dynamic? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a really good criticism to make that some stories seem to have been kind of manufactured from a pre-existing um, conception. And I think that's what I was trying to get at with my example of the IUD story was that like, as the editor, I came to that story with certain assumptions. And even though we went and did the reporting and we wrote a true history about this thing, um, it did reaffirm some of the assumptions we had going in. Uh, and so that description that you just made, I would say is a bit exaggerated from my experience, but yes, you can go in with an assumption and have it be um, unchanged by the time you come out of your reporting, especially if it's something really strong that you hold in your worldview. And I would hope that having good editors and many perspectives, as I've been saying, can help adjust as you go and help you realize where you have blind spots or assumptions. Um, it also has to do with what I was saying about science. Uh, there, I think actually in psychology is the big realm where this has, this criticism has come up is that um, scientists also can go in with a certain assumption or a certain desired conclusion. And sometimes that's what they find. Um, they go in looking for something and they find it. And I have a lot of examples throughout history but I think that was part of the accusations within psychology that were then re-examined, that sometimes the data was massaged or manipulated to fit the assumption that the scientists started with. Yeah, and I'm. it's important not to take a few cases and generalize to the whole. So I'm, I'm curious, because obviously this has happened, but I do think with the, the peer review process as a safeguard, Hopefully that will correct for a lot of those cases. So so it hasn't been commonplace throughout your career for an editor to say to you, go to the Coachella Festival and report about how all these kids are on drugs and, you know, or or something like that, or not not that example specifically. I'm I'm actually thinking about there's there's a famous case of the New York Times basically sending uh, a reporter to Woodstock and and mm -hmm. saying, Okay, go write a story about how this is a huge clusterfuck and all of these people are just taking acid and it's just, you know, just a, a disaster. And right, right. he arrived there and he's actually like, no, this is a, a cultural moment. I'm not going to publish that story. So has that, this has not been commonplace for you where you got a directive about a certain story to write that might've contradicted the facts that you discover. Well, yes and no, like absolutely no, no editors told me to write a story that was like so stereotyped and not based in fact, 
But I think part of the process is that editors have their own assumptions and they kind of live in a bubble often if they're not like out reporting themselves. And so if they assign a story, they may really think that reality is one way and the reporting shows that it's another way. And um, ideally, and what I found is that then you adjust the story to fit the truth that you find. And that's how good journalism works. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I guess I'm trying to say that um, yes, there are wrong assumptions in the assignments of stories and in the pursuing of truth. And the best we can do is be vigilant and self-correct as we go. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I feel like probably the the pressures to do that, to take that approach of like, just quickly, you know, write, write a story that conforms to some preconceived notion has probably increased with digital media with the, you know, urgency of getting stories out quickly. So let's, I, I'm curious, you know, to get into to your work and I, I, the work that I've read is just fantastic. And, and I think illustrates some really important stories that have been forgotten. I, I'm thinking about your BBC future series that, that you've started recently, but you are also the author of a, a forthcoming book called Lady Anatomy. Is that due out later this year or next year? Um, most likely next year. I think the publishing realm is a bit in flux um, given the election and the pandemic, 2021, 2022. Okay. So what is this book all about and, and what interesting findings have you come across in your research so far? And also, why was this a, a topic that you felt important to write a book about? So while I was at Smithsonian, I kind of became known as like the lady parts person. And I don't know if I even realized it at the time, but I really started injecting a lot of reproductive biology and women's health and history of science, um, history of women in science into uh, the online magazine. So I started a column. Um, it actually was the forerunner of the one you mentioned. Um, it was just called Women Who Shaped Science and have this incredible lead writer, Leila McNeil. And she would find these unsung um, women scientists and do these really in-depth profiles that were half about how they actually transformed or shaped their field in a way you usually didn't know about. So think hidden figures and half uh, their personal narrative and the challenges they faced, which often reflected like broader systemic challenges of women at the time. Um, so there was that thread going on. Then I was doing stories, like I mentioned about like the history of the IUD um, and just like the science of reproductive technologies. And these threads started coming together for me as I saw like people's reactions in the newsroom to covering these issues that they were either shocked or often kind of it felt very cathartic. Like I had um, an editor friend who had never said the word vagina growing up and was actually taught to say front butt. And like, she loved that we were covering this. Yeah. I grew up in a conservative area and um, this butt. stuff is like shrouded in shame, sorry, shame, shame and stigma for many and just bringing it into the open and treating it like, science and like fun um, and like interesting history, like it was more novel than I thought and really powerful to me how many people we were reaching and this intersection of gender and science. And that's what I became super fascinated by. Um, so 
those intersecting threads is what birthed the book, which is called Lady Anatomy. Um, and the idea is it's kind of half history of science and half like more new cutting edge science. Um, but it's how early anatomists mapped the female reproductive system and what all of those biases and assumptions I've been talking about so much, um, how they influenced their findings and how that in turn influenced how we see female bodies and even shaped female bodies. And that we're really seeing now a trend in new scientific pioneers. Often they are women, people of color, trans women, young women who are remapping the body today, finding all these new findings in something like as static as you would think it would be, anatomy, um, the body doesn't change too much in 100 years, but the science they're finding is really exciting and often points to just the opposite of what we've always held to be true. Ideas like there's a male and female brain or male and female anatomy fits in two boxes rather than a spectrum. Um, and they're really overturning these centuries of um, often misogynist white male anatomists. Um, so that's the book. Each chapter delves into an organ in the female reproductive system and its history of how it was originally mapped and named. And I like to say named, claimed and shamed um, and follows it. When, when you say the word mapped, what what do you mean by that? Is it like literally if you look at a skeleton, you know, seeing where these parts are or a 3D skeleton? So think of like the early anatomists who were doing dissections in the the era of like the Italian Renaissance, um, they were naming organs that often hadn't been named um, and they were characterizing them. You know, we had ideas about humors and vapors and like the liver doing something completely different than it really does. So when I say mapping, I mean like putting the scientific lens on a part of the body and saying, here's where it usually is. Here's where it what it does. Here's what it looks like. And here's how it fits in with the rest of the body. Um, and then mapping it like, smaller and smaller levels too. So once we got molecular tools and the microscope, zooming in on like the egg cell and the sperm cell um, and including that in our image of the human body. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it sounds fascinating. I mean, what strikes me is that this is just an area that people don't spend much much time thinking about, but it, it is very fascinating. And I watched your video recently about the clitoris. Is there a proper <laughs> X pronunciation for that? <laughs> uh, yeah, great question. Um, <laughs> that was so much fun to make. That was for Scientific American. And I think it was kind of pushing the boundaries for them. So I was very excited that the newsroom loved it and that we ended up being able to publish it. From what I found, clitoris or clitoris are technically correct, but almost every like surgeon and scientist who studies it says clitoris, whereas people who are less familiar and less comfortable say clitoris. That's just what I've noticed. And I say clitoris. That's interesting because I totally thought it was the other way around. I totally thought the mainstream people, the Luddites are saying clitoris and I've heard scientists say clitoris. So I Clitoris does <laughs> sound a bit more like elegant, I guess. Fancy, yeah. Fancy, uh, pinkies out clitoris. But I was going to say, that's kind of interesting that you say that because it just suggests that we don't talk about it, right? Because we don't know how to say it. Like, if we said it as much as we say the word penis rather than penis, you know, we would have an understanding of its correct pronunciation because it was in. And so I think it says something about the silence around that part of the female body. 
It also says something about kids these days, or or when I was growing up, they played the penis game and not the clitoris <laughs> game to see who can see say that word the loudest. <laughs> oh my gosh! Or vagina game? Like I could see yelling that, but that's because I'm me. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Instead of Marco Polo in the in the pool, next time we'll play clitoris <laughs> vagina. I I live to see that day. So, yeah, and and I, during high school, I mean, I try to close my eyes or keep my eyes shielded the entire time during sex ad class because it was just very startling. So (laughs) maybe that's maybe why I've got the pronunciation wrong. Um, No, no, you and millions and millions of others. And again, it's not even wrong. I was just interested by that fact. So one thing I was struck by during your, your talk is... And I hope this question doesn't come across as sexist in any way, but go for it. It it was almost like, what is the evolutionary explanation for the clitoris? Because from what I understood, it, it's mostly a organ that serves to enhance female pleasure during an, an orgasm. So, it, you know, when we when we look at the heart, we obviously know the heart pumps blood to the rest of our system and. Uh, you know, our hands are, are, you know, used to grasp bananas when we were Neanderthals and, and things of that nature. But, to, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, the, the vagina is, is where the ovaries are contained in. But so what is the evolutionary explanation of the clitoris? <laughs> Just as someone writing a book on this, uh, the ovaries are actually connected to the uterus. The vagina is the stretchy tube um, that connects the vulva, so the outside, like the mons pubis, where your pubes are and stuff, and your labia, um, connects that up to the uterus. So there's no ovaries in there. Um, the ovaries are where all the egg cells are contained, among other things. Um, but yeah, so evolution of the clitoris. I think this question has definitely been asked many times. Um, and there's not one explanation. So there are a few explanations. Personally, I am actually kind of bored by the question. And I'm kind of annoyed that people think that there has to be an evolutionary explanation for a structure that is homologous to the penis. So one of the most fascinating things about the clitoris to me is that if you opened it up and looked at the erectile tissue, yes, it's an erectile organ. Um, It has all the same ingredients uh, as the penis. I like to think of it as tacos and burritos. It's the same materials, different organization, um, but it's got the same two types of erectile tissue. It experiences erection. Um, It's just got a very unique shape that is more internal and has two arms that kind of flare back rather than the bulbs of the penis, which also are somewhat internal. Um, So why would you not have an organ that has the same erectile pleasure and orgasm function as you would in a male body? Um, Well, well, just to, to push back on that for a second, the penis is where the sperm is ejaculated from, which can, you know, is related to reproduction. Right. Yes. Good point. Um, So that is totally true, but we have a lot of homologous organs. So why do men have nipples? Because with women, they can lactate and they can feed a baby, but in men, they don't do that. Right. Um, So this is actually one um, explanation. um, But could we, we, we could, or is there not usually no, no, men don't usually lactate. As far as I know. So so my point is that's actually one of the evolutionary explanations is homologous organs. So um, the fact that all humans, male, female, everything in between um, come from the same 
embryological structures. We all look identical five weeks in, in the womb. And so of course, we're going to have a ton of similarities, more similarities than differences. Um, And the clitoris is known as the anatomical equivalent of the penis in that regard, even though, like you said, um, it doesn't release sperm or do something like that. Is it possible we're totally fueling creationism right now by saying, well, you know, God wanted females to have a clitoris. So therefore he or she created. I actually think this is one of the nicest things that religion has done is like um, passages in the Bible about like, you should pleasure your wife and like, you should be aware of female pleasure. So like, no, I'm not. It says that? (laughs) Yeah. That's very common in Jewish theology is um, that passage about like a man should pleasure his wife. So I think more, I think more females should be aware of that argument if they're, if their family is religious. Yeah. I mean, many I know are, um, and those views have been around for a long time, like in the medieval ages. So this is not new. Like there definitely are like old English passages about like rubbing your wife's clitoris and having like her like seed flow like honey, which may be anatomically incorrect, but still has this idea that female pleasure is important and is seen and is visible and that females have a clitoris, which hasn't always been considered the case. So yeah, and and so like I mentioned, there are some other evolutionary arguments. Um, One that actually Mary Roach, a great science writer, goes into in her book Bonk is called the upsuck theory. And that theory says that like when a woman orgasms through her clitoris, because that's where you orgasm, um, there are kind of spasms in her uterus. So that that serves to maybe suck up the fluid, which would be sperm and give sperm a better chance of making it to the egg. And so it might be evolutionarily um, beneficial if you can give your partner an orgasm, then you're also more likely to pass on your genetic offspring, which I think is kind of a sad reason uh, to try to be a good lover personally. Right. Well, you, you are now hovering around topics that in probably through your research and learning more about them that have become quite fraught in, in today's society, you know, as it's transgender and homosexual people have gain more um, social acceptance and and social capital. And one interesting case recently that kind of dovetails with uh, our journalistic integrity conversation earlier is the the case of J.K. Rowling. And so she famously recently got in some pretty hot water with some statements that she made. Um, I mean, I think it first started with her response in a tweet to to an article, something along the lines where the author had referred to women with, without using <laughs> the, the word women as um, they instead referred to women as people who menstruate. And so JK kind of, you know, wrote back snarkly in a, in a, you know, kind of condescending and mocking way about that. Like, didn't we used to have a, a term for people who menstruate? Like, isn't it women? And then, so she published this uh, long piece that in, in which she said, you know, she was defending her belief that all trans people should have rights. And she, but she also clarified if sex isn't real, there's no same sex attraction. If sex is not real, the lived reality of women globally is erased. I know and love trans people, but erasing the concept of sex removes the ability of many to meaningfully discuss their lives. It isn't hate to speak the truth. 
So she actually predicted during this letter that she was going to receive immense backlash given the the current environment. So I'm curious how you you unpack uh, JK's statements as as far as and and especially this this statement that I read just now, which seems to be a pretty compelling argument about maintaining the the feminism and and uh, rights of women. What, how do you, how do you unpack this whole controversy? Mm. I doubt I'm going to say something incredibly original because this has been well explored and I'm glad it has. Um, But it's an interesting distinction she's making that sex is a category that needs to be protected for us to have feminist values and protect women. Um, And I think it's very second wave feminist. So if you go back to The Second Sex by Simone de Beauvoir, you get the idea that sex and gender are separate concepts and that sex is biological and gender is how we are conditioned and how culture shapes us. And that can be very useful and it can be used to liberate women by saying that we are conditioned in certain ways that are unhelpful to us in society, but it doesn't have to do with our innate abilities and that maybe our potential isn't being reached. Um, But that concept has been questioned in recent years, like to the extent you can separate out sex and gender and to the extent that gender also shapes our bodies in ways that are biological that we used to consider sex. That's up for debate. Uh, I know what you were saying from her. I remember she also said that like sex has shaped my experience as a woman. So and took that as kind of evidence for um, if you get rid of this, you get rid of my identity and my ability to claim my identity as a woman, I would question what about her sex and being a woman shaped her identity? Was it the way that people treated her in society as inferior or less than or sexualized? Was it the fact that she menstruated or was able to have children? Because those things can be thought of in planes that are not just to do with, I am a biological woman. Um, So the menstruators thing There are many trans men who menstruate. There are intersex people who menstruate and people who don't identify as women who menstruate. And although some people may find it uh, awkward to use the language, that's just true. And if you're not acknowledging those people, then you're saying that you're not respecting their identity that they're asking for. And that is their truth and their lived experience. Uh, Wait, how is that possible that trans men so they they were previously men and now they are female right is that the opposite actually a trans man uh is someone who identifies as a man and might have been biologically born with a female identity okay which might explain my question for you you you're coming down a pretty interesting path here where you're you're kind of questioning in a way, the validity of her identifying as a woman and how that has shaped her perception of society. And and you're pointing towards some ways that women are objectified. So, but it's clear that in order to fight for women's rights, one has to, and to break through certain barriers that JK has, has broken through, it's probably important for her to have a strong sense of herself as a woman. So I'm just I'm a little confused by your your line of argument right now, or or just now that seemed to... I think this to, is one of the biggest problems, one of the causes for the failure of second wave feminism, which was not a total failure, but the breakdown in the end was that nobody could decide what the category woman really means. And in the case of that specific historical moment, 
Second wave feminism did a terrible job at including lesbian women and black women, who we today would say, obviously, they're women. And today the debate has changed. Um, well, J.K. Rowling's debate has changed to whether trans women can be considered under the umbrella of women who deserve the rights that feminism fights for. Do you think she's saying that implicitly or did she say it explicitly? Explicitly, I'm pretty sure. Um, she basically said, I don't disrespect trans people. I believe they have rights, but they're not the same rights as women or they don't fall in the same category as women, which is dismissing their identity. Mm, okay. Yeah. So I, one thing I didn't do in preparation for this conversation is read the full letter. I, I might've pulled this out of a, I don't think article. it's worth it. <laughs> but so, yeah, I mean, it's a super interesting area and, and you're very informed on it. So it, it sounds like in your perspective, she made some statements that could be perceived as transphobic and, and bigoted and, and potentially cause harm to, to trans people. And Absolutely. I'm pretty clear. That's my opinion. Yeah. That, I mean, what her position is known as TERPs, which is trans exclusionary radical feminists. And there are stronger communities of TERPs um, in some countries, including England, but it's a position that has received a lot of criticism for its lack of inclusivity and for drawing lines around who can be a woman and who cannot. Hmm. Another thing you picked up on, which I thought was interesting about her statement, the nuance here, you know, we, we do need to pay attention to the nuance as a society. And she said in her statement, it isn't hate to speak the truth. So what do you make of that? I mean, it seems like you, you took issue with the fact that she's essentially parallel. She's making a parallel between her statement and what is definitively the truth. Hmm. Right. Um, and I just looked up the sentence that I was paying attention to. So, so the nuance, and it was, my life has been shaped by being female. And in my reading, I feel like she has extrapolated out from her experience and what she thinks it meant to be female to her or what she experienced. That was her truth into what you're saying, like a bigger, broader, universal truth um, and kind of claiming her position as speaking truth to power and maybe speaking truth to um, this uh, culture of orthodoxy that you were describing earlier about like not being able to dissent. So yes, um, we all have free speech and can uh, make our opinions, um, which that is what I would describe what she's doing, not truth. However, is it not also true that we are responsible for statements that cause harm to entire communities of people? Like trans people are among the most discriminated against and the most commonly murdered in this country. And you cannot say as a public figure that those statements don't do harm and don't dismiss their identity. Uh, and I think she has a responsibility to that. I think everyone should, but a public figure to a larger extent, who has had such huge influence on a generation. So, well, it's it's interesting because I think we're getting into maybe how important, which I truthfully didn't consider it that important for a long time, terminology is. And I think what she's saying is that if we move in a direction as a society of no longer referring to women as women, if we say people who menstruate, um, you know, in in every boardroom and every place across society, if we lose this integrity of the concept of a woman, then we might lose our efforts at feminism and we might lose, you know, the pride that we take in, in, in being a woman and the, in the perseverance of 
our struggle for feminism. So do you see that at all, that claim that she's making that, hey, like I'm I'm proud of being a woman and we shouldn't lose this this terminology? Oh yeah, absolutely. That is true. So let's go back to the article that she in the very first place was commenting on. It was an article about how people who menstruate will get by in a post-COVID world. So ultimately it was about menstrual health and reproductive health, um, how to menstruate with dignity. Now, because you have articles referring to people who biologically menstruate, does that destroy the category of womanhood and what people who identify as women uh, see, feel, believe, and how they can articulate themselves? No. Like, we were talking about a specific biological experience. And I think, again, this is like the catastrophizing within journalism of this fear that suddenly we'll have no more real journalism and all outlets will be extremely biased and bigoted and opinionated. So nobody's trying to wipe the word woman off the face of the planet. And it has a lot of really profound, important meaning. Um, like I'm literally writing a book about how science has looked at the category that they've defined as women. Um, but it might not be the most accurate way of putting it in some articles and some forms of information. And why is it so offensive to talk about bodies that menstruate? Why did that even draw criticism from her? during a global pandemic and make her feel as if she had to write a blog post and double down. I don't mean to be just like shitting on JK Rowling for a long time here, but it was definitely made a lot of people in my Twitter sphere um, kind of raise an eyebrow as like, why is this a hill that you want to die on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely see that, that it, it seems to be a common theme for her. I think it's threatening. I think that some people are threatened Um, I mean, I think she kind of said as much about the idea of a female identity being erased, but I think we need to question what we're really feeling threatened by and why somebody having the right to their identity feels like a threat to ours. Well, actually, so very much like what you just said, that that people feel threatened. This is actually, there seems to be a hugely disproportionate, it's totally out of proportion, the response to her tweet versus the potential impact in the world, right? So hmm. let's take this example. Let's also take the example of uh, Jimmy Fallon. And I think it was like 2000. He apparently performed in, in blackface um, to impersonate, impersonate Chris, Chris Rock. Great. So maybe, you know, maybe this is a very biased way of thinking about it. But in, in my view, it's completely out of proportion to think that J.K. Rowling's statements really have a real effect in in the world like that might she might create violence of some kind against trans people or or people might be paying attention to the nuance enough so that that there is bigotry against trans people to me a statement such as don't you mean woman like that is very unlikely to do that now on the other side of the equation is the response that she has given which is totally vitriolic and emblematic of you know, the, the kind of um, cancel culture that we're living through. And so, so another example I want to put, put out here is um, the Brett Weinstein case at Evergreen State College, where literally because he thought it was a very misguided tack to take to reorient this historical, basically Evergreen State College had this um, tradition of right. 
and to reflect this, I, I think it was a Frederick Douglass play, mm-hmm. or maybe it was a play in which Frederick Douglass was a character that details and is important. But basically the whole college, the black student body and the faculty would leave to kind of commemorate like what it would be like to, to, to recognize what it would be like to have um, no black students or, or faculty on campus. And, and so the black faculty said, we aren't really comfortable with this anymore. We, we don't think it's a great idea. So the, someone hatched the idea, the, and it was endorsed by the student paper, that um, instead of the, all the black students leaving campus, actually all of the white students are, are going to leave in faculty. And without really, there was a disconnect between the endorsement of this idea by the entire student mm-hmm. body and, and faculty. Mm-hmm. And just basically like, a, it was like a mandate. And Brett Weinstein, a very progressive, very liberal professor said, hey, I I think we should rethink this. I think it's misguided. So and the response was literally like he was like physically assaulted and and basically like driven off campus to the point where the the administration could not said we cannot guarantee that we can protect you if you continue to stay here. So he was forced to resign. So if we look at those two things and, and this is this this is this idea of the disproportionate response versus the impact. If we look at that situation, say, what is Brett Weinstein's, what is the impact of that? One, he's taking a pretty tactful and logical approach. He's saying like, I don't think this is a great idea. I think we should rethink this. Um, He's not like, you know, he he didn't like embody racism or, or make racist statements in any way. And then you take the, the response, which is largely emblematic. That case is largely emblematic of the new, ideal of the American left, which is this like, you know, ideological conformity and hypercritical, you know, this, this JK Rowling example, it's like, we're now going to cancel JK Rowling. We're now going to cancel Jimmy Fallon. We're going to cancel Brett Weinstein. And you compare that, the, the kind of mob mentality though, really, you know, I, I picture like, you know, pitchforks outside of these people's homes, like compared to the way that these statements echo in the real world, it's like, maybe no one would even have noticed JK Rowling's statement if people, you know, on uh, really on the left did not make such a big deal about it. So do you see any huge disconnect there between like, and, and this is a real political issue because we talked about before how, President Trump on July 4th was at Mount Rushmore. And this is just red meat for the the American right. I mean, it's totally, you know, this idea of like cancel culture and and this, um, you know, groupthink or, I mean, he said it's basically the path to totalitarianism, which I mean, is just very hypocritical because obviously he's more, you know, on that path than, than the American left is. But it's like, it's, by doing this, by eating our own, we're, we're just throwing red meat to the American right. And I think a, a central focus should be like, okay, what is the actual impact of these statements in the real world versus what is our response? So that's a, a very long-winded statement, but but curious to get your thoughts on that. Yeah. And I hear you about the like infighting among people that often share most beliefs and values. Um, and like, is this the best use of our time and energy? That definitely is valid. So, I mean, I would focus on the JK Rowling example here, just because I disagree with the way you characterized it and feel that it is substantially different than the other one, which I admittedly know less about exactly what his reasoning was um, and what points he brought up about not participating in that, which could be totally valid. And like the idea of stopping and thinking about why we're doing this and what the meaning is sound very valid. Um, So with Rowling, like this is 
a woman whose stories and films and books have really like moved the minds of a generation. Like I said, millions and millions of people have extremely strong memories associated with her work. And one of the big themes in Harry Potter as a childhood Harry Potter fan is an outsider character gaining acceptance and belonging uh, and finding his place. So I think it feels like a very intimate betrayal to hear the author of this incredibly influential work talk about trans women as if their identities don't matter or basically shouldn't be given the dignity of the identity that they go by. Um, Now, maybe the harm is not direct violence, but I would argue that subtle harms can be incredibly meaningful, how the public sees the trans community, how trans children who grew up reading these books see themselves and maybe feel rejected by an author who they thought was very close to them. That stuff is huge to me. I don't take it lightly. Um, So I don't know if that makes me a uh, overreacting liberal, but that's my feeling is that she should be accountable for those words and the ideas that they espouse. Yeah. Yeah. I I could definitely see that. I I think there's definitely, it's amplified, you know, these, these reactions are definitely amplified and ramified on, on Twitter where there's a real disconnect between a person's identity, you know, who like their individuation and who they are as a person and like whatever they feel free to say on, on Twitter, you know, across the computer screen. And I don't know, it's a, it's a very, yeah, there's, there's maybe no right answer, but um, you know, there's, there's several examples of this that, that could be problematic. So switching tax a little bit, Rachel, I wanted to go back to something personal, which is an anecdote you shared with me. It's super interesting. And you described to me this uh, experience growing up in a in California in a pretty conservative area and uh, kind of rejecting of, of science or, or failing to teach science that was happening at the time. And, and uh, you had this really interesting story about how you've actually through that process have, have come to see science as, in a way as its own religion. And, and there are certain ways that science and religion, which have long been seen as very opposed can, can intersect. So can you share that story for our listeners? And, and maybe this will be, um, a note to end on. Yeah, sure. Um, so I did grow up in Orange County, uh, where we once shot down the idea of an AP environmental health class because it involved climate change, and that was too controversial. Um, I also would come out of my AP bio class in high school and be handed uh, pamphlets for intelligent design. Um, by a religious group that would explain to me how the eyeball is such a magnificent and unique structure that there was no way that it could have come about by evolution. The only explanation was that it was created by God. So I did have an interesting upbringing in that regard, um, having two atheist, scientifically minded parents. And so it was interesting that like, when I came to science writing, um, which was influenced by all those things, I thought of myself as more of a like neutral observer um, of things like religion. Um, and so I worked at a religious magazine, as I mentioned, or at least a magazine about religion. And I kind of thought like, okay, I'm more of a science writer. I can bring a more like neutral view to this. And I realized that I was not neutral. Um, I had assumptions about religion 
And I had a belief in science that was instilled in me by my parents and my environment, um, despite the Orange County politics thing. And I really started to question that. I think that a lot of people who are scientifically minded and not particularly religious can think of themselves as neutral and objective, and they can overlook the fact that, you know, I... I don't know theoretical physicists, but I believe when physicists tell me that the universe is expanding. And in a way, I have to believe a lot of experts that know things that I cannot possibly master. So we're all believing in something. Um, they may have very different bases and different foundations, but I think they can lead to really harmful assumptions. So at, at Slate is when I kind of got this micro beat of the intersection of science and religion, as you were mentioning. And like I would cover just a, a one study story that found that surveying most Americans by like the Pew found that extremely religious people actually didn't see a conflict between science and religion. Um, as you were saying, it's kind of a long held belief. It was non-religious people who thought that they were in constant conflict and could not be reconciled. So these are assumptions that we come at communities of people holding. Um, and I think that we need to step back and have more conversations about them. Um, and I think we can miss our assumptions about what science can and cannot do um, and how reliable it always is and the idea of it as unchanging truth. Um, those are all things that I try to interrogate in my book research um, and that really become pretty clear when you look at the history of science, because you're looking at the people and lives who ended up shaping a field and realizing that they're all products of their culture and history as we are. And that has consequences and that gets baked into what we call science or truth. Um, so it's not that I don't believe science and scientists. It's that I always want to know where people are coming from and what assumptions they have and be mindful of that because science can be used for good and it can be used um, maliciously. Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting, a couple of interesting pieces that you published recently kind of on that note about the understanding the the history of science and how we've come to know certain things about how the universe works you covered these two largely forgotten women. It, it, and I think this is the intent of the feature that you're writing for the BBC future, Miriam Melkin and Gisela Pearl, who actually what struck me about these stories is that they were operating on the, on the same time. And Gisela Pearl was in the Auschwitz camp. And why are these, th these stories really struck me in a way that they've contributed important findings and, and, had an impact on many lives, but have largely been forgotten. So can you summarize those, those stories and why you thought it was important to cover those two women? Uh, yeah. So this is part of the, um, the feature series I was mentioning before. It's now called Miss Genius and it's me and another writer, Layla McNeil. And uh, that's the idea of the series is we cover women scientists um, who change their field, but who, you probably don't know about. And we try to cover equally their importance to the scientific field um, and their own journey and their career and all of the hurdles they faced and how many of those reflect systemic sexism, often racism, and just the politics of their time. 
So yeah, choosing the women is really a challenge. There's actually way too many. That's our main issue. Um, we have more ideas that we can possibly execute. Um, but I've been happening to choose women that have to do, um, whose work has to do with reproductive biology, because that's what I'm writing a book on. And that's what I tend to do a lot of research in. Um, so for instance, the first one um, for BBC Future, Miriam Minkin, she was kind of an unsung IVF pioneer. She actually is known as the woman who performed IVF first in the 1940s during World Being War II. Being in, in vitro fertilization. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Um, so, right, she basically got a sperm and an egg to get together in a glass and to start um, creating lots of cells. So basically the start of what would someday be actual in vitro babies. Um, and it wouldn't be till 1973, I think, that we got the first in vitro baby. So we really, most people, even people who work in IVF, miss this whole chapter where Marion Minkin was onto something. She had achieved a milestone. And it actually turned out that it was um, her husband losing his job at Harvard that caused her to have to leave her lab um, where she was a technician and to basically never work on IVF in a significant way again. So she was working in the lab of Dr. John Rock, who is known for creating the contraceptive pill. Um, and he also worked on IVF. And he, to his credit, really noticed that Mary Macon was an incredibly disciplined and detail-oriented researcher. And he really believed in her talent. Um, but she did not have a doctorate. She would not be able to establish her own lab, um, partly because she was making money to support her husband going through medical school. Um, and so her experience as a woman in science was equally, if not more compelling to me than her contribution to fertility science. Because, I mean, IVF is the biggest revolution in fertility in the past 40 years, I think most people would say. It is it has allowed millions of women who were previously considered infertile to give to have children. It is a multi-billion dollar industry. It is worldwide. Um, and it has bypassed all these forms of infertility that we always thought were just uh, unpassable and that people were doomed to never have children. So it has changed so many lives. Um, so looking at that particular chapter of it and her role in it was fascinating to me. Um, and she as a character was fascinating. Mm, really cool. And in Gisela, we sadly don't have much time to, to go into, but she she was also a hero. She essentially made a uh, she knew that any any of the women in Auschwitz who were found to be pregnant mm -hmm. would be killed by the Nazis because they would be perpetrating more um, Jewish lives. And she actually had to orchestrate a, a number of abortions in order to save the the lives of the women, which I think most of us would agree or many people would agree is the ethical thing to do, but certainly a very fraught ethical decision. And uh, for those who are familiar with Pinker's work about um, brain dead children that are born, um, maybe, maybe I'll link out to that. But yeah, it, it reminded me of that story about focusing on the, the life that is, uh, you know, oh, rather than they would the Nazis would actually have killed both the pregnant woman and the child so right. mm -hmm. at least to save save one life well Rachel this has been a, a really interesting conversation and maybe we'll we'll do it again sometime I I know uh, you know some of the podcasts I follow they certainly have guests on 
multiple times. And I, I think you would be my one of my first choices to, to be a multiple guest because this was a really fascinating conversation. And maybe once your your book was released or maybe before then, we can talk again. And, and thank you for being so great with your time. That would be great. Yeah, I would love to. Thanks so much for having me. join the All Things Connected podcast, there's many ways you can show your support. You can write a review on Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher, wherever you listen. You can share it with a friend or talk about it on your own podcast. You can post about it on social media, such as sharing your favorite episode. Or you can support it directly on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash all things connected. Thank you very much. Your support is much appreciated.